there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. The subject that I've chosen for tonight is a faithful shepherd. And I'm just very grateful for one more opportunity simply to be one of tens of millions of witnesses to the faithfulness of God. I'm so glad that the girls sang one of my very favorite hymns, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And I want to just refer to a psalm very familiar to all of us, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. And as one child interpreted the next phrase, that's all I want. The Lord is my shepherd, that's all I want. And the older I get, the truer that is. I can't think of anything else in the world that I want or need. In fact, Lars and I often talk about the fact that we can't even imagine any changes that we would make in our lifestyle or possessions or anything else. We're just so grateful for all the way that the Savior has led us. And I give thanks to God, just unutterable thanks to God, for the fact that I was reared in a very strong Christian home. My next book will be on that subject. I've finished the book, but it won't be out for maybe another year or so. Just trying to put down on paper what my parents did to create the kind of home in which I grew up and for which I am so grateful. My father was a very tall, very shy, retiring, quiet man with a tremendous sense of humor and a very strong sense of responsibility of what it means to be a father. And he took it seriously enough that he would get up between 4.30 and 5 in the morning in order to spend time praying for us and reading his Bible and learning to know God. And when we came to breakfast around 7 o'clock, you can be sure that it made a difference to us that our father had been there on his knees alone in his study for those hours He didn't leave it at that. He herded us all into the living room immediately after breakfast and sat us down, and we all sang a hymn. We sang straight through a hymn book, one hymn per day, all the stanzas, not like some some certain denominations that I know of that shall be nameless that so often omit the third stanza. We sang all of them, and uh, then we sat while my father read the Bible to us, and then we all knelt to pray. He did the praying until we joined in with the Lord's Prayer at the end. And like any other kids, we weren't paying very much attention a lot of the time, but it's amazing how much sinks in by osmosis. Another one of the great advantages of our home was that my parents took seriously the scriptural command to be hospitable. And one of the modern translations says, be hospitable without wishing you hadn't got to be. I think the King James Version says, without grudging. And 
I grew up in the Depression, of course. I was born in 1926, but I vividly remember the Depression, and it wasn't as though my parents had very much money. We were not in a position to entertain lavishly, but my mother always figured she could put another place on the table and we could just cut down the family portions a little bit. And we had the great experience and blessing of hearing many, many missionary stories at our dinner table. We had dozens, hundreds, I guess, of missionaries that came through our home as visitors. My mother had a guest book, which I still have, in which there are 42 countries and 27 nationalities represented. And among the guests was a young woman named Betty Scott, who was on her way to China when I was four years old. She was going to marry her fiancé, John Stamm, who was out there at the time. And when I was eight years old, my father came home one evening with the newspaper from Philadelphia with headlines about the capture and the decapitation of two American missionaries, John and Betty Stamm. You can imagine the, the tremendous impression that that would make on an eight-year-old child. And my parents certainly had the wisdom not to protect us from that kind of gruesome fact. These two, this young couple was captured by Chinese communists and marched through the streets of a Chinese village and then John was beheaded in front of Betty's eyes and then she was beheaded as well. And that did make a profound impression. I began then to realize that to follow Jesus Christ is very likely to cost everything. And, of course, Jesus made that extremely clear. He said, if a man is not prepared to part with all his possessions, he cannot be my disciple. It was when I was ten years old that I made a public profession of faith. I'm sure I must have accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior much earlier than that, but I don't have a date to point to, but at the age of 10 I heard a frightening sermon on John 3, 3, ye must be born again, and I wasn't quite sure that I was, and so I stood up and made a public profession at that time. And when I was 12 years old, I came across a prayer that Betty Scott Stamm had prayed, and I copied it into my Bible, and it has been a very integral part of my own spiritual life ever since. It's a prayer of commitment. These are the words, Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to, be, to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. Work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. And I believe God hears a prayer like that, whether it's prayed by a 12-year-old or a 20-year-old or a 5-year-old. And I would certainly urge you parents of young children, never underestimate the spiritual discernment of your children. I knew very well when I was 10 years old that I was responsible to God. In fact, I consciously remember, I remember consciously thinking to myself, 
These grown-ups don't know what's going on in my head. I know God is speaking to me. I know that I'm responsible. And when I was 12 years old and made that commitment and was serious enough to copy it into my Bible, and a Bible which I still have, I knew from the Betty Scott Stam story that to pray, work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, might mean death. It was also when I was about 12 or 13 that I attended a, a conference in a place called Keswick, New Jersey, where there was a great missionary from Africa named Dr. Virginia Blakesley. Since I have become a public speaker myself and often look over the audiences wondering if there's one who has ears to hear what I'm trying to say, I've often thought back to how if Dr. Blakesley on that occasion was looking over the audience wondering if there was anybody there really with ears to hear, I doubt very much that she would have picked out the very thin, tall, shy child of 12 sitting on the front row. But I have never forgotten the impassioned manner in which she quoted for us, it seems to me, five or six times, maybe only once, but so powerfully, that it was indelibly marked in my mind mind and heart. The words from Isaiah 50, verse 7, as she told story after story of her experience as a jungle missionary, several times her life being threatened by, I believe it was cannibalistic tribes, and I can still see her as she leaned across the podium with tears just pouring down her face, and you quoted those words from Isaiah 50, verse 7, the Lord God will help me. Therefore, shall I not be confounded. Therefore, have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. Those things are very real in my spiritual growth, and I thank God for that. When I was about 14, I was in a Christian high school where we used to sing a lot of gospel songs, and one of my favorites was Beneath the Cross of Jesus. And it was, I had known that hymn probably for 10 years at least before I was 14. But like other children, I memorized without effort and sang the hymns without any meaning whatsoever. But when I was about 14, I began to think about the words, I take, O cross, thy shadow for my abiding place. I ask no other sunshine than the sunshine of his face. And I thought to myself, I'm a liar. How can I possibly say I ask no other sunshine? I can think of all kinds of sunshines that, I, that I'm asking for. I would like to have a husband and a family and a home, and I would like to be a missionary, and I want this and that and the other thing. And so rather than be a liar, I just really began to pray that God would help me to sing those words with real conviction and honesty. And I'm still praying exactly that. I think I'm closer to being able to sing them and pray them with total honesty than I was then. But of course, we're always in the process, aren't we, of 
learning to know God and being conformed to the image of his son. Then, when I went to college, I learned to him that we hadn't learned at home. It was, oh, teach me what it meaneth, that cross uplifted high, with one the man of sorrows condemned to bleed and die. Oh, teach me what it cost thee to make a sinner whole. And teach me, Savior, teach me the value of a soul. And again, I remind you that God hears prayers like that. God loves to answer prayers like that. And if all in an, if in all honesty, as much honesty as we can muster at whatever spiritual stage we may be, we say, teach me what it means, that cross, then God is going to start teaching us what the cross means. And it was in my junior year at, in college that I began to pray very earnestly about the whole matter of whether or not God was calling me to the mission field. I had hoped and prayed that he was for as long as I could remember, but I needed to get down to business and find out if this really was God's will or if it was just a notion of mine because I had grown up in such a missionary-minded family. My parents had been missionaries and I was born in Belgium because of their being over there. So I began to pray that God would confirm to me what seemed to be his call to some foreign mission field. I didn't know where and I thought at the time that it was going to be perhaps a medical missionary work. I was always fascinated with medicine and thought I would make a very great surgeon and I think I still think I might have been a good one. But um, it was just at the end of my junior year that I began to seek the Lord's will for a definite um, seal on that desire. And God answered my prayer with words of scripture, I the Lord have called thee and will hold thine hand and will give thee for a light unto the Gentiles. And so then in my senior year, I began to wrestle with what for me was a far more difficult question. It wasn't hard at all to say, yes, Lord, I'll be a foreign missionary. Many, many times in missionary meetings, I had gone forward or stood up or whatever was asked for about uh, of those who were willing to go to the foreign mission field. And I don't know how many dozens of times I had sung where he leads me, I will follow. And in one of our missionary meetings, the Foreign Missions Fellowship on the campus of the college where I was a student, we heard a great missionary from Tibet, a woman missionary, who said, if you pray where he leads me, I will follow. You must also be willing to pray what he feeds me, I will swallow. (laughs) And believe me, that was a lesson much needed in later years. But the crucial test, and I believe this is the definitive crucial test in the life of practically every young person, is the area of the love life. One's sexual desire, one's perfectly normal, natural, healthy desire for a wife or a husband, desire for marriage. And I longed for a husband and a family. And having grown up in a family, a very happy family, with six children, I wanted a large family as well. But there were no men on my horizon. I had gone through through high school and through college more or less as a wallflower. 
My mother had given me two rules about boys when I was about 12 years old. She said, never chase boys and keep them at arm's length. Well, my mother had had about three proposals before my father came along, so I thought, obviously, the rule worked for her. It'll probably work for me. And all I can say at this point, ladies and gentlemen, is that Lars is husband number three, and uh, I didn't go after any of them. I didn't deserve any of them, but God brought them to me. But I began to pray, Lord, I'm willing to be a missionary. I think I'm willing to be a single missionary, but I don't really like the idea. I knew quite a few spinster missionaries, old maid missionaries, and I thought some of them were wonderful people, but I didn't really want to be like them, not in that aspect. And so I prayed, Lord, you wouldn't ask me to be a single missionary, would you? And he said, I might. (laughs) And I thought my chances would be greatly reduced if I didn't meet a husband on that college campus, because after all, if you don't meet a Christian husband on a Christian college campus, your chances will be very sharply reduced thereafter. And so I was in that stage that we call senior panic. (laughs) And as I've discovered ever since that time, almost invariably when I ask God what he is going to do, his answer is not, what I'm looking for, but simply two words, trust me. And so, once having settled that and said, okay, Lord, I will trust you, and God reminded me of the prayer that I had written in the back of my Bible from Betty Scott Stam, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Use me as thou wilt, send me where thou wilt. Work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. And God was saying to me, are you rescinding that prayer? Or did you mean it? Well, there it was in the back of my Bible with my name signed to it and the date, and I said, I meant it, Lord, but does a 12-year-old have any idea what that's going to entail? Certainly not. Does a 25-year-old have any idea what that's going to entail? Certainly not. God doesn't give us a blueprint. He doesn't give us a searchlight down the pathway and say, this is what it's going to be. Do you like this? If you like it, then you can take it. He doesn't give us a smorgasbord of his will from which we may pick and choose whatever happens to suit our tastes. He says, if you want to be my disciple, and there are many other options, but if you want to be my disciple, there are three conditions. You must give up your right to yourself. You must take up the cross. And you must follow me. Whatever gives us the idea that the Christian life is somehow going to be a bed of roses. When the first thing Jesus talks about is self-denial and the second thing is the cross. Has anybody ever found self-denial comfortable? Yet I hear Christians nowadays just banding about that phrase that everybody uses all the time, 
I don't really feel comfortable with that. Whoever said that the way of the cross would be comfortable? How did Jesus feel about going to the cross? Well, we know how he felt, judging by the scene in Gethsemane. Comfort has nothing to do with it. So my feelings about being a spinster missionary really didn't have a thing in the world to do with the will of God. God was just saying, I'm not going to tell you whether I'm going to give you a husband. I want you to trust me. That's my business. Your business is here today. And today happened to be as a college student. And when college students say to me, well, I really want to do the will of God, you know, but it's just so hard to find out what it is. And I say, well, are you a student? Yes. Well, I can tell you what the will of God is. Oh, you can? Yes. Study. Quit plagiarizing. Quit cheating on exams. Quit getting your papers in late. Quit cutting class. Well, they don't want to hear that. No, they want some marvelous revelation, handwriting on the wall or pillar of fire or star of Bethlehem or something to tell them how to find the will of God. And the will of God is right here under your nose. And so God was saying, I want you to study and I want you to do what you're supposed to be doing here. And when, when my time comes, all you have to do is take one step of obedience and there will be enough light for the next. The Lord is my shepherd. He leadeth me in paths of righteousness. Not for Elizabeth Elliot's namesake, but for his namesake. I'm not to do my thing, but his thing. It's not my image that I'm preoccupied with. It's the image of Christ. I am to bear the image of Christ. I'm, to, I'm also to bear the fragrance of another life. Paul said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the crucial test came not so much when I said, okay, Lord, I'll be single, because at that point I didn't have any options. There were no prospects whatsoever on my horizon. Well, it's a hypothetical commitment then, isn't it? Yes, Lord, I'll do anything you say. I'll go anywhere you want me to go until... The rubber meets the road, and the Lord says, well, what about this? And so, lo and behold, I found myself falling hopelessly and helplessly in love with a man who, as far as I knew, had never blinked twice at me. I mean, I had not a shred of reason to think that this man was interested in me. He was what we used to call a BMOC, a big man on campus. He was a BTO, a big-time operator, and I was a TWO, a teeny-weeny operator. <laughs> I mean, he was everything. He was the president of the Foreign Missions Fellowship. He was on the student council. He was a campus clown. He was an athlete. He had won the championship in four states in his wrestling class, and he graduated with highest honor in classical Greek. Handsome, we girls just thought he was what we used to call a dream boat in those days. I guess they call him a hunk now or something else. Somebody told me another word now. I've forgotten it, but you have to forgive an old lady. I can't keep up with the modern 
uh, slang, but anyway, I think any of you girls have some idea what I'm talking about. I mean, everybody was panting and gasping over Jim Elliot because Jim Elliot never dated anybody. And if a guy wants to be the object of tremendous curiosity and interest on the part of the girls, then don't date anybody. And he didn't. He had made up his mind to get two degrees. One of them was a Bachelor of Arts, and the other was the AUG, which Wheaton College was not qualified to confer, nor is California Baptist, approved unto God. He had taken that as his verse for college study, to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. And so he decided he didn't have time for girls who were a tremendous waste of time and money. And uh, he had discovered that in high school. Anyway, to make a very long story as short as I can to fit into this time, I was in love with him and found myself more and more in love with him. And we just happened to have almost exactly the same schedule of classes that year, although I was a senior and he was a junior. We were majoring in the same subject. And every now and then I sort of thought maybe he had looked at me twice or maybe he had climbed over several students in order to get the seat next to mine and then then I would tell myself, don't be a fool. I had grown up absolutely convinced that I was extremely homely and this BTO would never be interested in this TWO. So anyway, when I joined the line of girls waiting for Jim Elliott's autograph in our yearbooks, I hoped, as probably all the rest of them did, that he would write something besides his name. And as far as I could tell, he didn't write anything besides his name in most of them, but when he came to mine, he did. And I couldn't see what it was right away. He just shut the book and handed it back to me. And I frantically thumbed through the pages till I found his picture, and there he had written Jim Elliott with a quotation from Amy Carmichael, of all people. And Amy Carmichael was my very favorite author. And under that the reference 2 Timothy 2.4. I wasted no time grabbing my Bible, looking up 2 Timothy 2.4, and these are the words I found. A soldier on active service will not become entangled in civilian affairs. (laughs) He must be wholly at his commanding officer's disposal. Well, I liked everything I knew about Jim Elliott, and I liked this more than all the rest of it put together, the fact that here was a college man who had made up his mind about one thing forever, and that was who his master was, his commanding officer. And he himself was at his disposal. Jim was giving me a loud and clear message that neither I nor anybody else nor anything in this world or in hell or heaven was going to deflect him from the purpose that he had chosen for himself to do the will of his commanding officer. And I thought, well, so much for my dreams and hopes and all of that sort of thing. And that was about in April. I was graduating at the end of May, I guess maybe the first week of June it was, and on Memorial Day there was a picnic. Foreign Missions Fellowship had a picnic at a park, and I was one of those that was there and one of the last to leave because I was helping to clean up the mess and there was Jim Elliott also cleaning up the mess and dumping stuff in the trash barrels and when I took a load over to the trash barrel he said can I walk you back to the campus and I said sure I was thunderstruck of course we walked about 
maybe two or three minutes down the sidewalk toward the campus. This was a beautiful May morning. And he said, I think we need to get squared away how we feel about each other. (laughs) It took my breath away. But it also made me a little bit irritated because I thought, what cheek, what brass that this man imagines that I have some feelings for him. I had never, by so much as the flicker of an eyelash, given him any reason to think that. I had not talked about it to him or to anybody else. And I thought, I mean, this guy really is arrogant, you know, to think that. But anyway, I said, what do you mean? And he said, what do you mean? What do I mean? You know what I mean. I'm in love with you, and I have been in love with you for months. And I said, no, I I didn't know that. And he said, well, you must be deaf, dumb, and blind because I've been trying to show you, but I haven't said anything. But now I'm telling you I'm in love with you. Whereupon he followed that stunning announcement with an even more stunning one, which was that as far as he knew, he thought God might be offered, might be calling him to be single for the rest of his life. And so he said, we're not going back to the campus now. He said, let's go back to the park and sit down and talk about this thing. So we went and sat down on the grass and we talked for seven hours. And we discovered that God had been taking us through exactly the same exercise of faith and obedience. He didn't want to be a single missionary any more than I did. His refusal to date had nothing to do with woman hatred. He thought women were very fascinating indeed. That's why he didn't want to date them, because he knew how distracting they were. But at this point, he thought that in all honesty before God and before men, he should confess his love to me. Well, I think he was mistaken in that. My father told my four brothers one thing, don't ever tell a woman you love her until you are ready immediately to follow that announcement with, will you marry me? And as far as I know, all four of my brothers followed that advice, and I give that advice to every young man to whom I have the chance to give any kind of advice at all on this subject, and most young men nowadays don't want to hear anything about advice because they're not thinking about marriage till they get to be about 38. But um, anyway, Jim Elliott hadn't had my father's advice, and so he did tell me he loved me, and then he said, but as far as I know, I'm never going to get married. I think God wants me to do pioneer missionary work, and I've been told that the kind of work I'm going into requires single men And if God wants me to be one of those single men, then I will be. So I have to wait until God gives me a green light or a red light. But in the in the course of our conversation, he as much as said, if God ever gives me the green light, I know who it is that I would like to have for my wife. But he said, I'm not asking you to marry me. I'm not even going to ask you to wait for me. I want you to go to go ahead and go to Africa, which is where I thought I was going. And he said, I'm going to South America, and if God wants to bring us together, God knows how to do that. Well, it's a very long story how God brought us together five and a half years later. But we left it with God. And the story is told in very intimate detail in my book, Passion and Purity. But as I travel around and as I receive literally thousands of letters, I think, from young people, who many who, who have read that book, one girl told me she'd read it 200 times, 
And I thought, well, she must have enjoyed it, but um, I said to her, you don't really expect me to believe that, do you? And she said, honestly, Mrs. Elliot, at least 200 times. And uh, the mail indicates to me that this whole dating scene is absolute chaos. And I couldn't tell you how many people have written to me and said, if only I'd had that book 10 years earlier, my life wouldn't be in such a mess. I wouldn't have such a trail of broken hearts, etc., etc. But God does deal with us at the crucial and most painful point, wherever we are. And with young people, I do not know of any more crucial test than the willingness to bring your love life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. I believe that if Jesus Christ is not Lord of your love life, he is not Lord at all. That is the point at which the reality of your Christian faith will be most signally revealed. It's either real or it's fake. You're either going to do his will or you're not. You're either going to sell everything you have, which I think is what Jesus is talking about there, even that most precious, most private, most cherished corner of your heart that says, I must have a mate. Either he's Lord of that or there wouldn't be enough evidence if you were arrested to prove that you were a Christian. So, skipping over years, I did end up in Ecuador and God had been teaching me through that Jim Elliot experience the answer to my prayer the prayer of that hymn oh teach me what it meaneth that cross uplifted high as Jim and I sat together one night in a cemetery just in those few days that intervened between his announcement and my graduation from college he lived in Oregon I lived in New Jersey he had another year of college I was finished I was going to Africa he was going to South America there was no way we were ever going to see each other again but we did take some walks and we talked more about the ways in which God had led us and taught us. And one night we were sitting in a cemetery on a slab talking about this cross thing. And that very morning, Jim's reading in the Bible had been about Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. And Jim said to me, you know, you're the most precious thing in my life right now, as Isaac was in Abraham's. And so he said, I put you on the altar and that's exactly where you're going to stay unless God provides himself a ram. And we sat and pondered this severe test and suddenly realized that the moon had risen behind us and was casting the shadow of a stone cross between us on that slab. So you know that I was keeping my mother's rule. We were arm's length apart. <laughs> Oh, teach me what it meaneth that cross uplifted high with one, the man of sorrows, condemned to bleed and die. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. It means death. 
ladies and gentlemen, that is what the cross is about. It is an instrument of torture. And so the lessons began. I went to the western jungle of Ecuador where I began to work on an unwritten language called Colorado. During that first year, and I was not engaged to Jim, he was working in a tribe clear over on the other side of the Andes, totally, totally different tribe, different language. And during that first year, there were three tremendous blows to my faith. And I haven't got time to tell you those tonight. That's Those are three separate stories, too. But each time, God was saying to me, trust me. Each thing was something totally unexpected, utterly incompatible with my notions of how God was going to help me. Remember that verse from Dr. Blakesley? The Lord God will help me. And I thought, is this the way you help me, Lord? Very strange things that happened. The story is told in a book called These Strange Ashes. A poem by Amy Carmichael had become very real to me at that time. These strange ashes, Lord, this nothingness, this baffling sense of loss. And the Lord's answer is, Son, was the anguish of my stripping less upon the torturing cross? What did you think you were picking up when you take up the cross? Why do we shrug our shoulders and roll our eyes and throw up our hands and say, well, we just don't understand these things, do we? Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because there isn't any. The world's filled with evil. Horrifying stories all the time. Just yesterday morning I visited a, a couple down there in Mission Viejo whose daughter Denise disappeared June 3rd. Not a trace, 23-year-old girl. She didn't run away. Her car broke down. Somebody apparently picked her up. And I sat there with the father and mother thinking of the evil, the horror. Well, Jim and I were married, finally, in the will of God in, Janu in uh, 1953. I had graduated in 1948. And we had 27 months, and then Jim, along with four other missionaries, went in to attempt to take the gospel to a tribe of Indians called the Alcas, and they were all speared to death. And I stood by my radio when the shortwave message came that my husband was missing, and the Lord brought to my mind immediately the words from Isaiah 43, verse 2, When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee, for I am 
the Lord thy God. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, not because there isn't any, but because thou art with me. And I'm here tonight to say he was true to his word. He was with us widows through the five agonizing days before we knew that the men were actually dead. Thirteen years later, the Lord gave me a second husband. I thought it was a miracle I got the first one. I couldn't imagine there'd ever be a second one. And I assumed that someday I might be a widow again since this husband was 18 years older than I, but I didn't expect it to be quite so soon. Three years after we were married, we learned that he had cancer. And it was as he was dying that God began to teach me a deep lesson that I had an inkling of before, that my sufferings are to be an offering along with my life. I had offered my life at 12. I didn't know that even my sufferings were to be a part of that offering. And Paul said, it is my happiness to suffer for you, for it is my way of filling up in my poor human flesh the full quota of Christ's sufferings still to be endured. And so when I present my body as a living sacrifice, I present everything in it, which includes the emotions, the sorrow, and the pain. Well, four years after the death of Addison Leach, along came Lars Gren. He's lasted a long time. It'll be 14 years in December, and we hope it'll be a lot longer than that. I wish I could give you more details. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. And as I look back and see, he has indeed been a shepherd, a faithful shepherd. Never once has any promise of his failed. He has led me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He took me through the valley of the shadow of death twice And as I approach official elderliness, or whatever you call it, the age of 65, I guess, is official. You can't call yourself middle-aged after the age of 42 or so, but some of us try to kid ourselves into thinking we are. But I know I'm old, and that's wonderful. I am thrilled to death. I cannot understand for the life of me why women have to dye their hair and lie about their age. I mean, I'd rather tell you I'm 65 than have you think I'm 75, you know. But I can't tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I cannot tell you how real the shepherd is to me and how very personal it is to know that that is all I want. I don't need anything else. And when he wants me to lie down in green pastures, he'll take me to the green pastures. And when he wants me to have still waters, they'll be there. And when it's time to go through the valley of the shadow of death for my own death, he'll be there. I won't have to cross Jordan alone. So this shepherd thing, it's not a figure of speech. He knows me. I know him. Every day there's a deeper awareness and a more bright reality and a far greater joy. My life verse comes from Philippians 1, 20 and 21. 
that the greatness of Christ may shine out in me, whether it be by life or by death. And it really doesn't make any difference, does it? I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>